My name's Ian and I assist with the Christianity Explained course and I'm reading the Bible this morning. The reading is Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, there are free Bibles at the back. You're free to take one and, and read along. It's Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 to 15. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you are taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you're also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross." And having disarmed the, power, the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Well, good morning, everyone. Just get my props and things sorted out here and uh, get my Bible open. If you've got a Bible um, and on your phone or a device or, or a Bible, then please keep it open. We're going to be looking at that uh, closely this morning. Uh, it's a great privilege to be here, and I'm very thankful um, for the opportunity to be able to be a part of this series that you're in, looking at Colossians. It's a great, great letter, isn't it? Focusing on the Lord Jesus and helping us to be, as that um, video reminded us, to be captivated um, by Him. And there's so much here to do that. So I'm thankful for being here. I uh, look back with fond memories of the times uh, when James and RJ were at, uh, at SNBC, and so it's nice to be able to see uh, the place in which they're serving the Lord and the context here, and great to be able to, to be a part of um, your service this morning. Uh, let's begin with prayer, and then we'll have a look at uh, God's Word together. Uh, Father, we do pray that you would um, open our eyes to see more of the greatness of the Lord Jesus this morning, and uh, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, soon after Elaine and I got married, we were uh, traveling around the bottom of the South Island of New Zealand, and I had gotten sick, had gotten quite a bad cold, and uh, was sort of feeling pretty sick and thought uh, you know, I needed to get something that would uh, help me to feel a bit better. And the tour bus that we were on uh, stopped at this place, and across the road was a chemist. And so while everybody was off the tour bus uh, looking around, I thought I'll just uh, zip across the road, have a look in the chemist, see if I can get something that will help me. And uh, I looked on the shelves, and there was these things called Barocca. You, you know what Barocca is? 
Uh, back uh, in those days, there was an ad on TV advertising Barocca. It was saying, it went something like, BBB Barocca to get your BB bounce back. And uh, so I saw this packet and I thought, that's exactly what I need. It had the word effervescent on the front. And I thought, that's exactly what I need to feel effervescent. So uh, I brought this this Barocca and uh, went back across the road. And other people hadn't arrived back to the bus yet. So I thought, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just get on the bus, sit in the front seat, get a good seat and wait for everyone. So I got up there sit, sitting on the seat waiting. And then I thought, I pulled out this packet of Barocca, had a look at it and I thought maybe I'll take one of these now. So I opened up the packet, took out this large orange tablet and popped it in my mouth. That's when I realized something was terribly wrong. There was this raging, foaming volcano that erupted in my mouth. This orange foam started, I couldn't contain the foam in my mouth. And, and then just as the volcano was erupting and, and emerging out of my mouth, then the people started to return to the bus. And one by one, they would take, they'd go up the steps, see me sitting in the front row, and beat it to the back of the bus. And... Uh, Eventually, uh, the, the foaming died down and uh, Elaine returned uh, to the bus and that's when I found out that effervescent was a, a reference to the foaming and fizzing of the tablet, not to how I would feel. And I, I think I had a look of uh, shame and uh, shock and surprise uh, on my face. So it's good to be sustained, isn't it? It's good to find sustenance. That's where the story was going, where it's good to find sustenance in life. There's all kinds of uh, reasons for feeling our own weakness. And uh, as Christians, there's all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're here this morning even, feeling a little depleted, uh, the batteries needing to be recharged, uh, feeling weary. There's all kinds of reasons why we need sustenance as we sense our own need for strength, as we face the struggles of life, whether it be health or family or the stresses of work or study or the future or the unknown. There's all kinds of things that can con contribute to us feeling our own sense of weakness and a need of sustenance. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is actually going to help us with this. These verses that we're going to look at this morning actually are the very heart of the whole letter. They give us the reason even why Paul is writing to this church at Colossae. Just have a quick glance at verses 6 and 7 there, the opening words of our passage this morning where Paul says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. This is the whole reason why he's been writing, as he wants these believers at Colossae to continue to live in Christ, to continue to trust Him. So that's the question for us this morning. How do we continue to live our lives for Christ? How do we sustain, continue to live our lives trusting in Him and seeking to serve Him? I'm thinking of how here, not, not in the sense of what are the mechanics, what are the things that need to be done, but how here in the sense of fuel, the sustenance, the source of our being able to continue to live lives for Christ. 
So we're going to look at this passage now and notice two things from this section, just two points. First of all, in uh, the first section, verses 6 to 10, and secondly then in verses 11 to 15, as Paul unpacks for us in this rich passage how it is we are to continue to live our lives for Christ. So, First point then, the first uh, set of verses we're going to look at are going to lead us down to verse 10. We're going to look at verses 6 and 7 first of all, and then verses 8 and 9, and eventually we're going to get to Paul's points for this first section in verse 10, but we need to do some work building up to that point, okay? So the first thing we're going to notice here is that we already have fullness in Christ. So that's Paul's first point here. How are we going to continue to live our lives? It's because of the fullness that we have in Christ. But we need to get to that point in a few minutes. First of all, let's notice the opening words here of verses 6 and 7. You see there those verses? So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, and then look at the focus, continue to live in Him, rooted in Him, built up in him, strengthened in your faith, by implication, your faith in him, overflowing with thankfulness. Again, not just abstract, random things to be thankful for, but thankful for him and for what he has done. So right at the very outset of this passage, Paul is pointing us to the source, isn't he? It's Christ. It's him. It's because of him that we are able to continue to live for him. This opening words here, this kind of just as, so continue. It's a kind of a way of reminding us of how we began. And the idea here is that it's you continue just as you began. You begin as you mean to continue. That's the idea here. So if you just take a pause for a minute and you think back now, what did I do when I first came to Christ? I recognized my need of him. I recognized that he was my savior. I recognized that he was sufficient. I recognized my need of saving and I recognized that he was my rescuer. And so you depend on, you rely on him to forgive you, to rescue you, to save you. And Paul is saying that is the way to continue. Continue to rely on him. Keep doing that. Keep looking to him. Keep trusting him. Keep relying upon him. So that's, the, that's kind of the opening. opening okay, what is it? It's Jesus. Not too complicated, is it? Jesus is the, is the one who's going to help us. Now he's going to give us two reasons then in the following verses. Before again, we, as I said, before we get to the point that he's making here in this section. So these two reasons, first of all, in verse 8... First reason is nothing else can help us. That's why we need to continue to look to him. There's nothing else that will be able to sustain us in our Christian lives. Every other attempt, every other source of information is going to detract from the sufficiency that is in Jesus. Now, we come now in verse 8 here to the very first not, not the first, but the first explicit reference to there's, a, there's an issue in the background here. There's something, there's a reason why Paul is writing this letter to this church at Colossae. It's been sort of lurking in the background, but he hasn't really come out and said, here's the problem, here's the issue, here's why I'm so concerned, here's why I'm writing this letter to you believers in Colossae. But now in verse 8, it becomes a little bit more obvious, doesn't it? It looks like there is some 
other teaching. There's something else that's going on in this church that might potentially lead these believers away from their trust in Christ. There's something going on behind the scenes that's trying to redirect their attention. Now, this teaching and the issues here are going to become much more explicit in the next section. So next week, James will deal with this in much more detail. But for now, I want us just to notice a few things about this teaching here. It looks as though it's oriented around a set of rules, a set of regulations that they are seeking to try and impose upon people in the church. So if you jump down to verse 16 for a moment, you can see there that it looks as though some of these rules may come out of the Old Testament, maybe some of their adaptation and application of some Old Testament laws. But if you jump down to verse 20 and 21, it looks as though some of these rules are going beyond the Old Testament. There are additional uh, teachings that they've uh, gathered from around about. So you can see there, there's rules there about don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. These are based primarily, Paul says, the, the issue here is that these are human-oriented. There's human origination here. In fact, if you go down to verse 23... These are self-imposed worship. This is like a, a self-directed religion here is what he is showing his concern about. And it appears as though these, these rules, these extra regulations, are being put upon people in order that they might live up to others' expectations. So again, if you go back to verse 16, you can see there that some people are looking down on people in the church who aren't keeping these rules. They're judging people. And then if you go down to verse uh, 18, it looks as though they're saying, you are not qualified because you're not keeping these rules. They're seeking to disqualify people for not holding to these rules. And it looks as though as you go down again to the end of the section, verse 23, that these rules have an extra edge of harshness. This uh, self-imposed worship characterized by false humility and the harsh treatment of the body. These rules, it sounds like these are for the really serious people. Like if you want to show that you're really committed as a Christian, that you're really serious, that you're nailing it in the Christian life, then these are the rules you need to keep. Otherwise, you're not a part of us. You don't measure up. You're not as good as others. And it looks as though these rules are appealing in some way. They seem to have the appearance of wisdom or the reputation of wisdom that if you keep these, you will be really strong, really successful as a Christian. Ultimately, says Paul, these are characterized by human invented rules. And the main issue, he says here in verse 8, is that they are, they are connected to this uh, human-oriented teaching that is depending upon human tradition. And this phrase here, this elemental spiritual forces, these basic principles of the world, we'll leave that for James to talk about next time, these basic principles of the world here, rather than on Christ. That's the issue here. They don't compare because they don't actually provide any help. 
they are helpless. They can't help you in your growth as a Christian, in your relationship with God. They are helpless and hopeless. And actually, Paul says, they are harmful. They cause more harm than good. They're leading people away from Christ. So first point he's making here in verse 8 is these other human-oriented, self-directed religious rules aren't going to help. Only Christ is going to be the source of helping us to live the Christian life. Okay, now we're still, we're not, we haven't got to Paul's point in this section yet, so, but we have to move on. Number two then, in verse nine, he gives us another reason. And reason number two is no one else compares to Christ. He's the source of our Christian life, not only because nothing else can help, but no one else compares to Jesus is what he's saying here. So have a look at verse 9 for us. Then in verse 9, he says, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness. One translation puts it this way. The entire fullness of God's nature is found in Christ. No one else compares. You see what he's doing here? He's reminding us, isn't he, of what was said in chapter 1. I think you've, you've had a sermon on chapter 1 already, haven't you, a couple of weeks ago with that, that great hymn where Paul there unpacks the greatness of the Lord Jesus. He's the one who has revealed the invisible God to us. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of the universe. He's the only one in history who's risen from the dead. No one compares to him. And so Paul is saying here, he's the greatest. The teachings, he says, are empty. They're hollow. But Christ, he has the fullness of God. Now, all of that has been leading up to verse 10. Now we finally get to Paul's point in this section. In verse 10, Paul says, And you have been given fullness in Christ. You have been given fullness in in Christ. You see, if Christ is the fullness of God, then those who belong to Christ have everything they need for a relationship with God. The NIV, uh, the more recent translation of the NIV translates this as, you have been brought to fullness. Literally, you are filled to the full. Not that you should be, not that you should try to be, not that you hope to be, but you are. You have fullness in Christ. I'm going to use this little illustration here. If we think of a, of a glass, okay, it's a, an empty glass, and if we fill it up with water, then the glass is what? Full, isn't it? it we're not saying it one day will be. We're not saying it hopes to be. We're not saying this glass is trying to be. We're saying this glass is full. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you have been given fullness. You have been brought to fullness. You have nothing lacking in order to have a relationship with God if you have Christ. Advertising agencies have used a phrase for a long time where they, they might say, accept no substitutes. You heard that phrase, accept no substitutes. In other words, what they're saying is our product is of such a quality, such a standard that nothing else compares to our 
product. And in some, in some ways, that's what Paul is saying here. Accept no substitutes. Don't be distracted from Christ. He's the fullness of God. Nothing else can help and no one else compares. When I was a, a younger Christian, a, a while ago now, a new Christian, uh, I listened to a Christian band and uh, I thought they were pretty cool and they had a guitarist and I thought he was pretty cool, he was well known as well and they were a part of a Christian community in a big city in the States and they, they had, in this Christian community, they uh, had a ministry where they would seek to serve the poor in the city and uh, provide shelter for homeless. They had a great ministry. And so as a young Christian, I thought it'd be pretty cool to be able to see what they were doing, to see what it was like. And uh, so I wrote to them and I uh, was traveling at the time anyway. And uh, they said, yeah, sure, you can come and stay and help out and be a part of, of things here. So young Christian, I turned up and uh, it was fantastic. It was terrific. They were they, they were, you know, helping people and sharing the gospel with people. It was amazing. It was so good to be there. As a part of being there, they, they put people who came along to help into little Bible study groups as well. And after a while, in the Bible study, it became apparent uh, that they thought I needed something else, um, that I was lacking. And that if I wanted to have real power as a Christian then I needed to have this extra experience. And this extra experience had to be demonstrated, had to be seen in particular ways, in particular gifts. In other words, they were saying that to live the Christian life, Christ was not enough. Now, it's not exactly the same thing that's going on here in the background of this letter to the to the Colossians, but it's similar. It's similar. It's the idea that what you need to be a really powerful Christian, to be really effective in the Christian life, what you need is something extra in addition to Christ. You need an extra experience. Maybe you need to have an extra status. You need to follow some extra steps, or you need to follow the teachings of this particular guru, this particular teacher. And then you will be full. Then you will be a real Christian. Sometimes in churches, uh, some people latch on to a particular issue, and it might be important in and of its own, in its own right, but for that particular person, this little side issue becomes all important. It becomes everything. And everybody needs to hear about and talk about and discuss this particular side issue. Or sometimes someone in church latches on to a particular teacher on YouTube or on the internet, and, and this particular person and their teachings becomes all-consuming for them. Every conversation is about this particular set of teachings, this particular person, what they are saying, and how you and you and you and everyone in the church needs to listen to this particular teacher, this particular guy on YouTube. Again, sometimes some things that might be important in their own right, but they get blown up out of all proportion to become the important, the central thing. All potential distractions that might take us away from Christ. Christ is what Paul is saying here. He's the one who will sustain us. Nothing else 
compares. No one else compares. He's the source. We have fullness in him. Okay, so far, hopefully not too complicated. Jesus is the answer. (laughs) You probably knew that already this morning, hopefully. Jesus is the answer. How are you going to live the Christian life? Through Jesus. Jesus is the one. Keep relying on him. Keep trusting in him. That's the basic point so far. Everyone's okay with me so far? Everyone's with me? That makes sense? Jesus is the answer. We're all good with that. Uh, Amen. So that's good. Let's keep going then. Paul wants to help us now to see how it is that Jesus helps us. How does he enable us to continue to live for him? And so the second point we're going to see here is not only do we have fullness in Christ, we also have freedom in Christ. He enables us to be able to serve him, to be able to continue to live lives for him. And we're going to see now in these next few verses, verses 11 to 15, three aspects of this freedom that he's going to highlight for us. Three aspects of this freedom. So, first of all, in verses 11 to 13, then, he's going to highlight that we have freedom from death. We have new life. The picture here is of this radical transformation that comes to the person who trusts in the Lord Jesus. Paul is using here his familiar, once you were, but now you are, kind of description of the Christian life. There's a a before and there's an after. So down in verse 13, especially where he summarizes this, when you were dead in your sins, this is how you were, but now God has made you alive. You have new life. It's a radical transformation that he's talking about here, from death to life. Just like back up in chapter 1, sorry, just go back a couple of slides. Um, Back up in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, but now he has reconciled you. Now, oh, we did have the before and after slide up there already, didn't we? Can we just go back to that one? So, yeah, I didn't want to dwell too long on that, but he is talking about a before and after here. But there's much more than than, than that here. There is a a radical transformation. It's not just before and after. It's death to life. Now we'll go to to the next slide. It's death to life. And he's saying here, this is this radical transformation. This is what it looks like here to describe who you were before and who you are now in Christ. Before unresponsive to God, unable to respond to him, separate from him, apart from him. He uses Old Testament language here to speak of circumcision or an uncircumcision. It's Old Testament language to say this is who we were outside of God's people, uncircumcised in our flesh or in our sinful nature. It's a reference to our weakness, our proneness to sin, our inability to respond to God. This is who we were, but, Paul says, God has made you alive. He's given you new life. You are now able to respond to him. You're in a relationship with him. You've been made alive. Look at these verses again in verses 11 to 13 and see how this has taken place. You see there in verse 11? In verse 11, in him this took place. In him you were circumcised. And down in verse 12, you were buried with him, and you were raised with him. And then in verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. There's this mysterious picture here of the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection becoming ours when we belong to him. 
the benefits of his death, his defeat of sin becomes ours when we belong to him. The benefits of his resurrection, his defeat of death where the power of sin no longer holds sway becomes ours when we belong to him. It's this new life, he says, that comes to us through faith in verse 12, through your faith in the working of God. And it's demonstrated then, as we've seen already this morning, it's demonstrated in baptism. This new life that we have through Christ is seen and demonstrated in baptism. Now again, notice what Paul is doing here. He's not saying this is something you need. He's not saying this is something you should try to have. He's saying this is something that you have. You have new life if you belong to Christ. Now, not only do we have freedom then from death, we have this new life, but secondly, we have forgiveness of sin and the freedom from guilt. Now, we're going to work our way through these sections here, and then we're going to pause and see what it is that, uh, that God is saying to us this morning from these verses. We've got, now, secondly here then, we've got forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt. Now, I'm going to read the last few words of verse 13, and I want you to participate and say the word that comes next when I stop. Okay, you ready? So here's these last few words of verse 13 where uh, Paul says, he forgave us, what's the next word? All. He forgave us all our sins. Our small ones, yes. Our big sins, yes. Our past sins, yes. Our future sins, yes. All, all our sin is what Paul is saying here. In other words, the focus here is what we already have in Christ. The reason why we have this new life and this freedom from death that he spoke about in the previous verses is because of this rescue from sin. The cause of our death, the separation from God has been totally and comprehensively dealt with. He's forgiven all our sin. Now, the details here are what he unpacks, this forgiveness. He speaks here of the, some complicated technical phrases here. You notice there in verse 13, he speaks about this, uh, this forgiveness, sorry, in verse 14, of uh, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Our legal indebtedness. This is a, a way of referring, I think, to God's law that highlights the obedience that we owe to God. And it, it highlights the many ways in which our obligations to God have not been met. It highlights our sinfulness, our, how many times we have rejected and rebelled against what His will is. This, is. this legal indebtedness here is highlighting how we've broken His law. We've rebelled against God. We've turned from Him in seeking to live our own way. And this law, he says, stands against us. It condemns us. It's like, a, it's like a speeding law. It, it, there's a law that says you should go a certain speed, but if you go above that, that, uh, that limit, then you are breaking the law. We might say then the law stands against us, condemns us, and if you get caught, then there's a punishment that may come along with that as well. Here he's saying we all stand guilty of rebelling against God's law. We've all rebelled against God and we all face judgment for that rebellion. 
But look at what Paul says here that God has done. The very first word that he uses here in verse 14, he says, this has been cancelled. This charge of our legal indebtedness has been cancelled. This is a word that was used in the ancient world for washing, for cleansing, for cleaning documents. And so some translations use the word erased here. He has erased the charges that were against us. In the next uh, slide, there's a picture of a document which uh, has some writing on it. This is an ancient document here. It's called a papyri, a piece, of, a, a piece of manuscript. And I don't know if you can see from the back there, there's some scribbles on there. Can you see the scribbles on there? There's some writing on there. Okay, now in the ancient world, then what they would do is if they would cleanse that document then, if they would wipe it clean, then we go to the next slide and we see the writing's gone, you see? It's been erased. It's been washed clean. And that's what... Uh, Paul is saying here, God has done. He has erased, he has cleansed, he has washed away the charges that were against us. But then not only that, in verse 14, he says, not only has he cleansed the document, he's taken it away. It's gone. <laughs> There's no document there. It's gone. So this, in other words, Paul is saying he's removed it out of the picture entirely. This document no longer stands against us, no longer condemns us. It is completely removed. There's no more charges. And then at the end of verse 14, you notice there he says, not only has he taken it away, he has nailed it to the cross. He's nailed it to the cross. This, of course, is a reference again to the crucifixion, isn't it? It's a reference to the penalty, the punishment for our sin that has been taken for us by Jesus in our place, nailing it to the cross. There's an old hymn that is based on these verses that I'm reminded of when I read that verse. He's taken the charge of our legal indebtedness, taken it away and nailed it to the cross. It's a hymn that's called, It Is Well With My Soul. Some of you might know this this hymn. It's an old hymn, but the third verse is based on these words here. Let me just read out the third verse of this old hymn to you. My sin, the hymn writer says, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So momentous is this victory that Paul goes on to say that in verse 15, not only do we have freedom from death, not only do we have freedom from guilt, but we also now have freedom from hostile spiritual powers. These spiritual powers that were against us, Paul says, are disarmed. Or literally, they're stripped of power. He's thinking here in terms of the way that the Bible describes Satan sometimes. You know, there's a word that is used sometimes to describe Satan elsewhere in the Bible. He's called, maybe you might know this, Satan is called the accuser. The accuser. He's thinking here of this role of Satan in accusing us and looking at a person's sin and saying to them and to God, look at this person, look at their sin. They clearly don't belong to you. They still belong to me. And Jesus is saying he has lost the power to accuse. 
There's no accusation now. He's been stripped of power. And then he goes on to say then in verse 15, this, these spiritual powers who were against us have been made a public spectacle of. He's triumphed over them by the cross. It's a picture of a, of a Roman victory, uh, a Roman general returning from victory is the image that he's using here. You might have heard this image described before where the Roman general would return to the city and he would lead the procession and behind him would be his victorious soldiers and right at the very end of the procession would be the defeated enemy. And that's what Paul is saying here about Satan and the spiritual powers that would be against us. He is a defeated enemy. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, he said, He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son. I follow an English soccer team called Southampton. Now, there are not many Southampton supporters around, I must say. Uh, I know one other. <laughs> And uh, the reason is because Southampton don't win very many things. Uh, last season, if you know anything about English soccer, uh, you might know that there's a Premier League. And Southampton were in the Premier League of the English soccer, uh, the football league. Um, but you might say that they were the strongest team in the league. The reason is because they were firmly planted at the bottom. They held the rest of the league up. Okay, they were really bad, okay, and they got relegated. And so if you meet a Southampton supporter, they're often characterized by patience and long-suffering, okay? And, uh, and, and if you meet a Southampton supporter, there'll be one year that they'll talk about, and that is the year 1976. It's a long time ago, but it was, I think, the last time they won a major trophy, okay? 1976, they won what is called the FA Cup, and they beat... Manchester United, against all odds, with a goal towards the end. So I have this at home. There's a little prop that I brought with me. Does anyone know what this would have been? I didn't bring it with me. It would have held something. It would have held a, a record. This is an antique now. Uh, but this is a record of the commentary. It's sad, isn't it? Sad. And uh, this is a, a record of the commentary. And uh, I've listened to that commentary. I've memorized it. And uh, I'm going to repeat some of it for you now, okay? So I'm going somewhere with this, don't worry. We're, we're heading somewhere with this. I'm going to repeat that it all happens in the last few minutes, okay? Right at the very end of the commentary, then one of the commentators says this, okay? He says, well, Martin, looks like we're going to extra time. No one looks like they're going to score a goal here. It's nil all. But then having said that, someone's probably going to score a goal. Oh, and the ball has been passed to Bobby Stokes, and he's scored for Southampton. It's a goal for Southampton. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and you know what every Southampton supporter says, including me? We say, we won. And you say, what do you mean, we won? Were you there? No, I didn't know anything about Southampton in 1976. Did you score the goal? No, Bobby Stokes scored the goal. What do you mean, we won? It's because Bobby Stokes scored the goal for us. And this is what Paul is saying here. For those who belong to Jesus... The victory has been won for us by him in his death and resurrection on the cross. And it's because of Jesus that we have freedom from death. We have new life. It's because of Jesus that we have freedom from guilt. We have forgiveness of sin. 
And it's because of Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross that the spiritual powers are no longer against us. He's a defeated enemy. We belong to the risen Lord Jesus. Now, we've been asking this morning, we began this morning with that question, how do we continue to live our lives for Christ? And we began by focusing on Jesus. He's the one. He's the source. Keep looking to him. Keep trusting in him. Keep relying on him. But how does Jesus help us to live for him? Well, he provides us with new life. He provides us with forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt and a relationship with God that enables us to continue to live for him. He provides us with freedom from spiritual powers that will enable us to continue to trust in him and serve him. I want us to pause now and just reflect a little bit on what Paul may not be saying here and what he is saying to us, what God is saying to us from this passage this morning. You notice this passage is not saying, make yourself alive. Go on, get this new life. It's not saying that. It's saying you have this new life. It's not saying, this passage is not saying, deal with your guilt Go on, work harder, deal with your guilt. It's it's not saying that, is it? It's saying you have freedom from guilt. And he's not saying here, muscle up, overpower Satan's spiritual forces. He's not saying that here, is he? He's saying Satan is a defeated enemy. He's been triumphed over at the cross. So he is pointing us here to what we have already in Christ. But as I wonder, why is Paul focusing on these three things here in this context where he's trying to encourage believers in this church not to be distracted, not to to wander away, not, not to follow after some other teachings? Why does he zero in on these three things? I wonder, I wonder if it's because sometimes we experience these things and this then tempts us to look elsewhere for help. Because we often do feel cold and distant from God, don't we? We often do have that sense of our own guilt, our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness that can plague us at times. And we often are aware of our own weakness in the face of spiritual opposition or forces or oppression. We do feel distant. We do feel our sense of guilt. We do feel our weakness. And so Paul here, I think, is not saying then, he's not saying you're never going to feel unresponsive to God if you become a Christian. He's not saying here, once you become a Christian, it's just smooth sailing, it's all the way through, no dramas at all, no struggles. He's not saying that here, but he is saying That if you do struggle, if you do want to live for Christ, then that is evidence of this new life that you have been given. If you didn't have this new life, then you wouldn't care. You wouldn't feel the struggle. But Paul is saying here that he has given you this life, enabling you to respond to God, raising you from the dead, enabling you to continue to trust in Christ. 
And again, he's not saying you're never going to feel the weight of your own guilt or your weight of your own unworthiness. But what he's saying here is when you do feel that, you don't need to continue then to, to work it up, to try and add in some extra activity, some extra rule, some extra uh, discipline in order to try and overcome this and trying to earn God's forgiveness. He's saying here, go back to Christ. Seek him. Come back to him as a member of his family. And again, he's not saying here, you're never going to feel a sense of weakness or uh, in the face of spiritual opposition. But what he is saying here is that Satan is a defeated enemy. And you can look to Christ and depend upon him. Ultimately, nothing can separate you from God's love because of Christ. This whole passage here is telling us what we have in Christ as we, of course, look forward to that day in the new heavens and the new earth when finally we will have a resurrected body, when finally we will be free of the ongoing presence of sin, when finally we will no longer experience spiritual oppression and temptation. But in the meantime, as we continue to live for Christ, Paul is urging us here this morning to continue to look to him. In him we have fullness, nothing lacking for our relationship with God. In him we have freedom, we have new life. What this passage is urging us to remember this morning that no one and nothing else can sustain us in the Christian life but Jesus. It's possible that some of you are here this morning, maybe, maybe visiting, and these opening words here that says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, it's possible that this might not have been your experience, that you might not look back to a time when you trusted in the Lord Jesus. And so this part of, of the Bible here would be a pointer to us all to see what we can have in the Lord Jesus, forgiveness of sins, a relationship with God, and the security of eternity with him. Maybe this morning you have felt this weakness and wandering and feeling that distance from God, and it's been a while since you've looked to him in prayer and looked to him for strength to continue to trust him. This passage is a reminder to all of us here to come back to the Lord Jesus, to look to him, to rely upon and to depend upon him. Let's close in prayer together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege we have of the assurance of all that you provide for us. We thank you that you have provided us with forgiveness of sin and freedom from guilt. We thank you for the new life and the freedom from death, and we thank you for the freedom from spiritual powers that you've rescued us from. Lord Jesus, we constantly feel our weakness, and we feel our uh, our sense of guilt and, and frustration and unworthiness. 
And we do often wander. But Lord, we thank you that we can come to you because of who you are and what you've done. We thank you for the fullness that we have through you in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would strengthen us this morning, that you would enable us to continue to rely upon you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.